This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art. You're listening to The Voice of the Arts, WQED-FM. I'm Jim Cunningham. Matthew Kramer is here, the music director of the Butler County Symphony Orchestra. We're coming up on their final event of the season on the 8th of April. It's a program that features music from Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood with Korngold and Steiner and Maxman and more. It will be at the Butler Intermediate High School, and it will almost be the end of the road for Matthew Kramer, who's recently taken over the post as music director of the Louisiana Philharmonic. Matthew, congratulations. It's a real treat to be with you. Oh, it's a treat to be with you, and thank you so much for that introduction. It's hard to believe that 11 years has gotten by so quickly, but I'm looking very much forward to sharing the stage with my colleagues in this wonderful program of the golden age of Hollywood. Well, I'm so glad to hear you will also be back at least one more time next year. We'll look forward to great things from New Orleans. And I want to ask you about that in just a moment. But let's talk about the program you have planned for the golden age of of Hollywood. How did you put it together? It's such a vast uh, area of of, uh, music, the music for the silver screen. How did you choose what we're going to hear in Butler? Oh, you're right. There is so much to choose from. But this is an area where I've felt great passion for decades, really. These, These composers came over to the United States. Many of them were fleeing uh, either the Nazis or instability at home, whether it was the Soviet uh, revolution. They found a home uh, in Los Angeles in this uh, burgeoning industry of Hollywood that had ample money to to spread around to, to orchestras and composers to really create this sound that emerged after 1927's the jazz singer proved that uh, audio could be attached to a film, talking movies. Uh, and so Korngold, Waxman, Steiner, Rosha, Tiomkin, you just named them. Uh, these composers were really responsible for design, de- developing this robust sound. And they came from opera houses. They were writing symphonies and concertos. So this was the natural medium for them uh, to come from opera to be able to develop a film score. So I picked some of my favorites and I left a lot of favorites out because we have to keep it under two hours. But I think all of the composers that represent the golden age here are on this program. What do we have from Ben-Hur? Uh, Ben-Hur, the, the famous uh, charioteer, uh, Parade of the Charioteers, where, I mean, it is one of the most epic scenes in all of cinema. And to think now, you know, for movie lovers in present day that have everything that is computer generated, uh, CGI graphics, that all of these biblical tales, uh, you know, from the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, were all done, you know, with incredible cinematography. And Roche's music just delivers its huge brass fanfares. Uh, I, I saw that uh, Andres Ryu, uh, you know, famous Waltz King uh, contemporary, had his orchestra of must have been 200 brass players staged around somewhere in Austria. Uh, magnificent sound. So Roche is one of the, the great composers. And that has been her as one of the great scorers. You have to forgive me. I'm an inveterate name dropper. I had the chance to meet, <laughs> uh, meet Miklos Roche on two occasions. Andre Previn invited him to participate in his Previn and the Pittsburgh series, and he came to the WQED studios to have the march from Ben-Hur played by the Pittsburgh Symphony. And then later, I had a chance to interview him about his long relationship with Previn and, and their work that they had done together in Hollywood. Amazing man, so gentle, and, and yet wrote these incredible scores and a lot of concert works, too. Wouldn't you say... it? Uh, the Hollywood scene, we're now appreciating more than maybe 20 years ago. For a long time, music for the movies was considered to be kind of 
I, I don't know, second rate in the classical music world. John Williams seems to have lifted the bar for everybody. And now we realize, oh, Corn Gold is amazing. Uh, Miklos Trosha is mm-hmm. astonishing. There, there's, there's a lot more appreciation, I think, for what's happening with the Hollywood scene. I would agree with that sentiment absolutely 100% that there was a little bit of puritism in the classical world that if you were working in another genre, somehow that was beneath you, that pops music was not on the same level of classical music. And I think you can equally appreciate all of these different genres, that these composers were like Rosha, writing concertos for colleagues, Hungarian variations, uh, Eris Korngold, as we've already mentioned, and John Williams writes concert works uh, as well for his musical colleagues. So I think the craftsmanship is impeccable, and it's because these were classically trained composers. But we can see now that lineage from John Williams all the way through Alfred Newman uh, back into these, these Golden Age composers. It is a very large tree uh, that also goes back into the great romantic period of the 1800s, 1900s. More specifics about the program, please. Uh, what are you going to do by Korngold? What do we have from Steiner and, and Waxman? Uh, uh, King's Row, which is a 1942 film, I believe. It actually stars Ronald Reagan. Uh, wonderful film score with little hints of uh, actually Star Wars thematic fanfare that maybe had crept into John Williams's music. And also the great Seahawk. Korngold uh, 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 composed scores for a number of Errol Flynn movies, including Captain Blood, uh, and the Adventures of Robin Hood and His Merry Men. Uh, so those two works, Seahawk and King's Row, uh, represent Corn Gold by uh, Bernard Herrmann, great American composer. We have Vertical Suite, uh, most famously perhaps as Psycho, but the Vertical Suite is a magnificent film score. Just very, uh, it, it has so much to do with this, the uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, anxiety and that sense of uh, impending you know, dread that we have in those great psychological films. Uh, Dmitry Tiomkin, a Russian composer, uh, wrote film scores for uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and you only get a fragment of it in the film, but he also wrote great westerns, and we're going to perform his film score to High Noon, Max Steiner, of course, Gone with the Wind, uh, Elmer Bernstein, The Magnificent Seven, and uh, we've even got a, uh, to close the program, because we're talking about that musical lineage, uh, John Williams' Cowboy Overture, which is one of his first uh, film scores that really does connect to the golden age period. So a lot of wonderful music and Henry Mancini as well as uh, somewhere over on the, the rainbow because it's their songs as well as these great film scores uh, included in this period. Did you say Henry Mancini? Oh, absolutely. Pittsburgh connections have to remain here. Moon River will be on the program. And I think we're just going to have to call it an audience sing along at that point. It's funny with Mancini. He was born in Cleveland, but we absolutely claim him for Western Pennsylvania because he grew up in the Beaver Valley. That's where he went to high school. And he really got his start downtown at our, uh, it's now the Benetton, but it was the Stanley Theater where he used to hang out with the music director there. So a lot of his early influences were from Pittsburgh. And then he came back often to conduct the Pittsburgh Symphony Pops as as well. So Mancini makes everybody smile. And again, (laughs) somebody that over time, his reputation has just grown and grown it's astonishing how talented he was and his discography is enormous i don't think i appreciated how many films he scored over a very long period of time what else should we share about this program yeah you've sold me i'm there (laughs) (laughs) it is our season finale there will be a reception afterwards i look forward to meeting as we always do so many of our patrons in the lobby celebrating a great season the end of my tenure with the orchestra but then also setting the stage uh, for the 75th anniversary season which will be announced at this program so our audiences can see the incredible programming that we have uh, in that anniversary year as you mentioned i'll be back for one program 
And we just look forward to connecting with everyone uh, that really helped to sustain this marvelous orchestra into our eighth decade. Tell me about your new post in Louisiana, the Louisiana Philharmonic, which was formerly the New Orleans Philharmonic, but in 1991 became a musician-led ensemble. What does that mean? Well, they uh, had some terrible financial uh, situations in the late 80s and 90s. They were forced into bankruptcy, and that was the collapse of the New Orleans Symphony. But so many dedicated musicians from that orchestra remain behind and believe that there was a future for orchestral music in the city. So they reconstituted as the Louisiana Philharmonic. It is a very interesting uh, structure, as you mentioned. It is musician-governed, but it is collaboratively operated with uh, community trustees. Uh, and it has a 36-week season. It presents uh, 14 classical concerts, weeks of classical concerts in addition to pops, uh, opera programs, uh, you know, what we find in so many full-time orchestras, a wealth of chamber music, educational programming, uh, extensive work. So this is going to be a real change of gears for me, but I look forward to uh, the inherent challenges and the wonderful artistic rewards of working with such a dynamic orchestra. How long had the New Orleans Philharmonic been around before they unraveled? Several decades. I mean, the list of conductors through there, I'm actually the first American-born music director in the in either organization's history. Uh, there, uh, uh, let's see, Maxime Shostakovich, son of Dimitri, was a music director, Philippe Entremont, uh, Klaus-Peter Zeibel, and uh, most recently, Carlos Miguel Prieto after 17 years. Uh, so this, this the, uh, the history of orchestral music in New Orleans actually goes back even further than that. It's, it's said to be one of the first opera houses, if not the first, in the United States. And as everyone knows, the history in New Orleans is so much of what makes that little pocket of the United States so extraordinary. Maestro Kramer, let, correct me if I'm wrong. In the orchestra world, doesn't the... I'm thinking of your orchestra being musician-led and governed, but in the orchestra world... Doesn't the music director always come in a hero and go out a bum? <laughs> it's like a president, isn't it? You over time you find out the things you don't like. I mean, I would think this would the pressure is going to be on. You're really going to be on the hot seat at that podium. Very much so. But the good news is it's the musicians that hired me. So I'm walking in, I think, to now a very open and honest working relationship with them. And you know, there will be obviously things, uh, repertoire that I feel strongly about, and others that will probably be more suitable for guest conductors. I like the collaborative nature of the organization is very much how I operate anywhere that I've ever worked uh, in the first place. So I think that this is gonna be a unique uh, situation for me and I'm looking forward to bringing what I can to the table. Now, have you spoke, uh, talked to uh, Lawrence Slow, our assistant conductor with the Pittsburgh Symphony? He went to Syracuse. Wasn't it a similar thing where they reorganized and are musician led, they, they changed the name of the orchestra to Symphoria. I just wondered if you've looked at their situation or talked to Maestro Lowe about what's happened there. Very much so. When I was with the Buffalo Philharmonic, I was very well acquainted with the former Syracuse Symphony and then the Syracuse Philharmonic, which was the interim organization. And finally, Symphoria conducted them on several occasions. Many great colleagues there. The model is very similar. It's patterned off of what the Louisiana Phil Philharmonic did over 30 years ago. And now there are others. The San Antonio Symphony recently reconstituted as a musician-governed orchestra. So perhaps this is a way forward where the musicians feel they have investment in the organization, their voices are heard. Uh, but again, it is collaboratively run that there are 50-50 uh, split on the board of community trustees. So it's an interesting model. And when it works, it works very well. When it doesn't, well, it has its challenges, but we learn from them. Have you looked at the problems at the New Orleans Philharmonic? Have One would think that New Orleans being such a 
tourist city and a great music city. This is the city of jazz and Louis Armstrong and Beale Street, all the amazing things there. Uh, why did they get into financial trouble? It just doesn't make sense. I think uh, the, the solution to that first I'll offer, which is what they have done in recent years uh, as a, a collaborative organization looking to work with many of the other arts organizations in the city, celebrating the history uh, of the city's jazz uh, and also culinary, uh, a fascinating call it culinary history. But it has opened itself up to more diverse programming in that regard, that it is not strictly classical music. I mean, there was a stretch when they were just playing all of these Shostakovich symphonies uh, under uh, Maxim Shostakovich. And it's it realized that the diversity of offerings, as every orchestra, as you know, in this country is doing now, even the Cleveland Orchestra and Pittsburgh Symphony are performing uh, music with, you know, movies with live orchestral accompaniment. So I think an orchestra has to be much more than just a classical organization. Orchestral music can encompass everything. And I think that that's been the solution here for the orchestra. Also, as a city, there, there I believe there's one Fortune 500 company. There is incredible wealth in that city, but also debilitating poverty. So I think the organization has been looking at ways to generate revenue that isn't from the corporate or foundation world. And that's one of the challenges that we'll face continuing going forward. What was the first thing that they uh, were excited about when you came and spoke to them about plans you might offer them, things you'd like to do right away or within a reasonable amount of, of time uh, for your first couple of seasons? Uh, what are you really looking forward to getting rolling with? Well, two things. First, the relocation. My wife and my sons and I are moving down in June, so we'll be immersed in New Orleans culture. It's going to be obviously one of the most um, uh, unique moves that we've ever had from in Indiana down to New Orleans. But being present, being in the community, being uh, a part of the, the fabric of the organization week in and week out. Uh, and then also my commitment to every aspect of their programming, not just the classical subscription concerts, that I want to be involved in the educational programming, the outreach uh, to underserved communities, and uh, uh, really a springboard for, or a catalyst rather, for, for future collaborations with area artists. That this job really is more than just flying in week in week, you know, for my subscription concerts and leaving that I will make the New Orleans a residence uh, and really look to a five year, 10 year plan for the orchestra. Will you be able to hang on to some of the music in Indianapolis? I have, have renewed with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra for four years, and this is still home and will remain. My parents are just down the street about an hour. So we'll keep a residence here in Indiana and probably spend our summers up here. Uh, but our main residence will be down south. Oh, it sounds great. I'll look forward to hearing more good news from you in Louisiana. And do you get to travel from New Orleans since it has the Louisiana, the state uh, name on the Philharmonic? That's absolutely right. That's another component of what we're, we're the only full-time orchestra in the state of uh, Louisiana. And we're the largest, one of the largest uh, arts organizations in the Gulf South. Uh, so we do have ours, our moniker, Louisiana Philharmonic, and we do uh, run out programs in the region to the north side of Lake Pontchartrain, but also uh, to various outposts in the state as well that uh, don't have an orchestra of their own. Matthew Kramer, I've spoken to several musicians that play in your Butler Orchestra and John Furman, the executive director. They all praise the great work that you've done over the past 11 years. These last two years were very challenging with the pandemic. Uh, what special uh, pride do you uh, look back on your tenure of the past 11 years in, in Butler? Well, first and foremost, it's the community, uh, the, the friends that I've made along the way, even though I've never had a permanent residence in Butler, it's always felt like home every time that I've, I've come there. And all of these accomplishments are not one person. Uh, it really is, as we say, a, a team effort. 
from a board that has always uh, supported me and uh, given me everything I've needed in order to raise the orchestra bar. The musicians, of course, who have just year in and year out come with such heightened elevation of, of artistic standards, wanting to do better, wanting to dive into the music and tear it apart. And these programs that we have done in recent years would never have been possible uh, 11 years ago, to be completely honest. The Nielsen symphonies, La Valse, uh, symphonic dances. This is repertoire that the orchestra has just really, really grasped, I think, exceptionally at high standards. So I, I'm thrilled that the organization is in significantly better shape than it was in the past, financially, educational outreach, artistically. Uh, all of these things are a source of great pride. Congratulations once again on your new post and the great work that you have done here in Western Pennsylvania. I am uh, so glad to hear you'll be back next season, and I hope we can talk you into further returns over the coming seasons because you've added so much here. It's just just great to know you and to hear your music making. It's been very exciting. Thank you so much, Jim. This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art.